Before you die, I want to get this through your thick, primitive skull. I never worked for you. You worked for me. I want my life back. Welcome to episode number one of Central Intelligence Cinema. Thank you so much to those willing to share our maiden voyage out into the podcast world to talk spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Today, we'll be reviewing Atomic Blonde. Let's get started, shall we? Cue the theme song. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Soto. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Remember... Nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand on, sir. Do you expect me to talk? Yeah, baby! <laughs> Recorded from an undisclosed location, welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as should always be the case, Ben Esslinger. Hey, everybody. Today, we will be reviewing the 2017 movie Atomic Blonde. I'm very excited. Woo! I promise not to try and overswoon about Charlize Theron <laughs> or that scene. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, it's a pretty good scene. Uh-huh. It's good stuff. It's good, it's, it's, it's good stuff. Lots of ice. <laughs> lots of ice, lots of vodka. Lots of 80s music. I love the music. I love the action. I think, uh, I don't know. We should probably get into the intel first. Heck yeah, let's do it. Looking for a news story? Impress me. Transmitting CIC Intel dossier. They'll print anything these days. So before we get started on the real Intel, I just wanted to give a couple quick shout outs. James Bond Radio retweeted our our trailer and uh, we really appreciate that. So thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And uh, also Bill Koenig of the Spy Command um, offered up his rather definitive blog on Man from Uncle for reference, which is it's always nice to feel welcome when you enter into a community such as this one. So uh, thanks to those people. And uh, yeah, I guess we'll get into the actual intel now. So there's a bunch of really bad spy movies <laughs> coming up <laughs> right before No Time to Die gets here. <laughs> so, so it's setting the bar. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> no Time to Die is going to feel amazing after... <laughs> The few that are coming up. So the first one is Spices, spelled S P Y C I E S. <laughs> it's an animated movie about a cat spy and his hacker companion, who's a mouse. <laughs> oh boy, Tom and Jerry do James Bond. Yeah, that sounds great. No. <laughs> so then we've got Spy Intervention, also in February, which looks like a low budget Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It looks awful it looks absolutely terrible let's say who was in that one uh god i should have looked it up it's probably not i know there's there the female in it is notable but i don't know who she is fair enough (laughs) and then my spy on march 13th with a former bond actor but a terrible looking movie with dave bautista basically kindergarten cop with spies 
yeah, looks terrible. Just <laughs> looks like a piece of crap. <laughs> and then moving forward in the calendar, we've got Black Widow coming up on May first, which will not suck. Which will not suck. I'm excited for that one. I'm more. I'm even more excited, however, for Tenet, uh, Christopher Nolan's new one. Oh yeah. On July seventeenth, that looks really, really interesting. The idea of espionage and time travel. Sure. Let's do that. I'll take two. And then we've got to talk a little bit about, they're doing Without Remorse, the Tom Clancy story, starring Michael B. Jordan as John Clark. What do you think of that? I know I know you have some thoughts, Jason. <laughs> I think I'm not going to see it. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Nothing more? Okay. So that's out on September 18th, take it or leave it. And then also on September 18th is The King's Man, the uh, prequel our buddy Ray finds. Yeah, that looks like it's going to be great. That one actually does look really good. I hope they redeem themselves because I did not like the sequel to Kingsman. I How didn't. can you not like Elton John flying through the air in a karate kick in slow motion, turning the camera, smiling, <laughs> teeth glint, ching. But is that the first one? Because the first one's nope, good. That's the second one. Oh, is it? It sure is. Oh. I just... Uh, <laughs> it just went over the... You know what it was? Because it had cowboys in it. And I'm not a fan of cowboys for the most part. That's fair. But I mean, any movie that has yeah. Jeff Bridges in it automatically is okay, even if the rest of the movie yeah, is bad. Gets a pass automatically for <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Bridges. <laughs> so then, uh, all the way down into October, you've got... G.I. Joe Snake Eyes, starring Henry Golding of Crazy Rich Asians fame. So that will probably not be good either. You know what? Maybe. You know, you know I mean, you the, know what? Yeah. You never know. Snake Eyes is the best character in G.I. Joe. Yes. Mostly because he says nothing. <laughs> this um, is true. But I mean, he was the action figure that everybody had to have. Nobody really cared about, uh, you know, Breaker or Grunt. You know, you had to have snake eyes. You had yeah. to have scarlet. Everybody had snake eyes. Right. I because mean, and he had the wolf and the sword. Yeah. And then you got Storm Shadow. The the ninja. The white ninja? Yeah, because that's his arch enemy. Yeah. And you could have him sword fight. Oh, that would be. Yeah, it was it was good stuff. But I mean. They're going to bring back ninjas this year. <laughs> I'm okay with it, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You been, know. They've been gone for long enough now. It's no longer. Well, you know, they trendy. pop up every so often with four little reptiles, but uh, otherwise, yeah, ninjas haven't really been a thing for a while. Yeah. And ninjas are like the ultimate original spies, right? So, yeah, you know, maybe we could throw some ninja movies in there <laughs> under the pretense. We'll have to find a decent one. <laughs> okay, well, then maybe not. <laughs> maybe one really bad one that's epically bad. Oh, that would be American Ninja. <clears throat> yes, it would be. Holy cow. Wow. <laughs> and then looking way into the future, a couple ones that I just sort of found on my radar. There's one called 355 starring Jessica Chastain, Penelope Cruz, Diane Kruger, and Lupita Nyong'o. Supposedly, it's supposed to be like a big budget, cool thing. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it had a buzz around it. Seems intriguing. Um, and then the other one that sounds really interesting is a TV series that's going to be on Amazon called Citadel by the Russo brothers, who did, who directed Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Um, he did, they did uh, Avengers End Games. They did a bunch of huge, huge movies. So, oh yeah, and that stars Richard Madden and Priyanka Chopra. 
And that's expected to air. It's going into production this year and probably won't air until 2021. So, woo. So that's pretty cool. But now, now, it's time to talk about Bond. Woo! <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I have waited so long to talk about Bond. I need to talk about No Time to Die. I'm very, very excited. I know that it had a troubled beginning. And I'm aware of all the problems that it's had with Danny Boyle having issues with Eon and all all that. And then they brought in people to change the script or bump, you know, make the script better and all that stuff. But I'm actually, that's movie business, man. Sometimes movies just need all that stuff before they become good things. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be good. I, I really do. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. So while we, as a podcast, have missed out on most of that early drama, we do get to talk about Billie Eilish having written with her older brother, Phineas, her writing partner, the theme song. And then Hans Zimmer will be scoring the film alongside the former guitarist for The Smiths, Johnny Marr. That was recently announced. Wow. I guess they're they're like buddies, like Hans and Johnny Marr are like buddies or whatever. So Everybody's buddies with Hans. I want to hang out with Hans. Who doesn't want to hang out with a guy named Hans? Exactly. He's Hans. <laughs> <laughs> so... How, what do you think of that? What do you think of a Hans Zimmer scored Bond movie? Well, I like Hans Zimmer. I mean, he he does action adventure stuff pretty good. You know, he yeah. did some of the, uh, the Call of Duty games, music for that. I think he did. Um, didn't he do Gladiator? Yeah, I he believe did. he did. He did Gladiator. Um, he now, did Batman. Which the, one? The Nolan Batman's. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, um, then, he even did the Man of Steel theme. I don't think he did all of Man of Steel though. But I like his stuff. It's very, I don't want to say Harold Faltermeyer, because that's a whole different thing entirely with the synthesizers and everything. My eyes just glazed over when you said his name, but... <laughs> Think Top Gun. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but um, he's got an electrical, electronic thing to him that, uh, that, yeah. that you don't see in a lot of contemporary stuff anymore. But it's not in your face. It's kind of well integrated with uh, the more orchestral stuff. So, yeah, I, yeah I'm good with it. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. One question that sort of gets raised when they say Hans Zimmer is scoring the movie, is it actually going to be him or is it going to be one of his sort of shadow composers? Because he runs Remote Control Productions, which has 60-some composers comprised in it. And so we won't know necessarily whether it's actually him or one of his underlings or I don't even want to call them underlings because that's that's actually insulting but it's just somebody else that where Hans gets the credit but you know it worked for Rembrandt it can work for Zimmerman it it's, it worked for Blade Runner 2049 as far as I'm concerned Heck so yeah and uh I guess Dan Romer obviously is out I don't really know too I didn't really know too much about him I just knew that he was Carrie Fukunaga's sort of go-to score guy and then Eon was like eh. <laughs> eh, I don't think so. So, <laughs> so anyway, the uh, the widespread release of the movie of No Time to Die will be on April 2nd in the UK and April 10th in the States. Aww. I going to say April 2nd is the day after my, or before my birthday. That would have been a great birthday movie. Oh my goodness. And in addition, just a couple hours before 
we are sitting here recording this, they announced that the world premiere of No Time to Die will be on March 31st at the Royal Albert Hall. So that's fun. Um, also, uh, did you happen to see the Heineken commercial, the new Heineken James Bond commercial? I did not. It's, uh, it's like two minutes long. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know what it is? I, <laughs> and we'll get into this later too. I hate Heineken as a beer. It's not my, <laughs> it's not the beer for me. <laughs> Just, it's kind of skunky, man. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But the the commercial was kind of funny. They had two different versions. They had a, a two-minute long version where Daniel Craig gets into this cab. He's on vacation somewhere. And he's going to some sort of party or whatever. And he gets in the cab and the girl immediately is like, oh my God, it's James Bond in the back of my car. And so she starts driving really crazy to wherever he's going. <laughs> and... Daniel Craig in the back is like, oh my God, oh my God. Because it's it's kind of trying to distinguish the difference between Daniel Craig and James, who James Bond is. Right. So so she drops him off and he gets out and he leaves his passport and all of his stuff in the back of the car. And then she drives away and then he realizes that she has all his stuff. So then he it begins this quote unquote action sequence where he runs after her. <laughs> Tries to find her. <laughs> and there's a, there is a funny moment while he's running because he's running and he's trying to catch this car. And there's these two old guys just like on the side of the street going, oh, it's James Bond. And then, and then Daniel Craig like runs out of steam. He runs out of breath and stops. He goes, oh, it's not James Bond. <laughs> so that part's kind of funny. Anyway, he winds up at the, at the party and sort of like sneaks his way into it, which is weird. And he somehow there's there's a, a wardrobe area for this party, and he of course there's a tuxedo there that he can just of throw course. on. And then he makes his way through, and then magically the uh, the cab driver happens to be at this at this party, and he gets his <laughs> and he gets all his stuff back, and then he winds up at the bar, and that's like the end of it. It's sort of I don't know. So, and then I I saw a seven minute version of it. Seven minutes. It's a director's cut, and they they actually uh, killed the link to it really quickly. But I I was able to get in and watch it right before they killed the link to it. But it's basically a seven minute long joke lead up to him burping at the end. <laughs> like, so it's and and the premise is different too. Um, in that one. She doesn't recognize him at first. Okay. And then she doesn't she doesn't realize until at the very end that he's Daniel that he's Daniel Craig or James Bond or whatever. It's just it's I don't know. I don't know. The the two minute version's much better. I will say that. So anyway, also note on No Time to Die, there was one rumor that it could ne- be nearly 3 hours long, but people should take that rumor with a huge grain of salt because it came information came from a local cinema chain in Russia that supposedly got its info from Universal Pictures Russia, which has been known to be accurate because they basically just took the exact information from Universal Pictures Russia and put it on their website. So in theory, it's sort of credible, but that webpage was actually removed very quickly after the word got out that it was... That doesn't say that anything, that was the, does it? 
Right. So take what you will from that. It's the thing is though, is they're still in editing. I mean, they're it could very easily be different than where it's at now. Oh, for sure. But it probably will be a long movie because if it's Daniel Craig's last one, they're going to yeah. try and cram as much. Well, and they're going to have to sew all those things together to try and make sense of, you know, the whole retcon continuation thing that they're doing right now. So, and then one final, final thing. Um, <laughs> and this is just for collectors out there. Big Chief Studios, who are a company that make, they make those really good looking like 12 inch tall figurines of Bond and some of the characters. And they've done the whole, I want to say it was three different figures for Goldfinger, which are really great. So they're supposed to be putting out a live and let die set with, with Roger Moore in the, in the turtleneck. And of course, <laughs> yes, looking quite, quite good, which is the one I ordered actually. And this is the <laughs> only reason why I have this information <laughs> is because they recently sent an email after a very long time. Cause I pre-ordered this over a year ago. And I'm like, am I even going to get anything? <laughs> but yes, in fact, they are on their way and they should be arriving at the beginning of February. So if you want some live and let die figurines to add to your Bond collection, it might be a good thing. There you go. Well, I suppose we should get into Atomic Blonde now. Oh, <laughs> who wouldn't want to get into Atomic Blonde <laughs> now or otherwise? Yes. All right, then. Lorraine Broughton. Expert in escape and evasion. Provision in intelligence collection. Let's cut the crap, shall we? So, Atomic Blonde, released in 2017, directed by David Leitch. Is it Le- Leitch? 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 I don't know. I'm Rob? not sure. I haven't heard it pronounced out loud. Let's um, just call it Leitch. 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 Okay. Leitch. And, and we'll, we'll run with it until we get uh, confirmation elsewhere. All right. I'll send him a call. <laughs> of John Wick fame, uh, he was the co-director of the first John Wick movie, although not not credited on IMDb as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah that's what I it know. said. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Considering um, it's all fight movie, why wouldn't you credit the guy? But whatever. Right, and he's the fight coordinator. Right, right exactly. So, <laughs> he also did Deadpool 2 and the recently released Hobbs and Shaw. So... <laughs> Make what you will of that. It definitely uh, has a genre. He definitely has a lane. I was looking <laughs> at his IMDb and what he's got coming up, and he's staying in his lane, man. He's got one where there, I forget what it's called, but there's some sort of outbreak of smallpox. It's some sort of hybridized version of smallpox. Okay. Maybe it's like weaponized or something. Does it like fight people with knives and... Gun barrels Absolutely. and things like it's that? It's become sentient. Okay, then I definitely want to see that Yes, movie. I'm totally all in on that one. And then he's got another one. I forget what the other one is, but anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he was also, a uh, fun fact about this gentleman, he was a stunt double for both Brad Pitt and Matt Damon multiple times. Highly trained in Muay Thai and was a competitive kickboxer. So the story was based on the graphic novel The Coldest City, uh, written by Anthony Johnston and Sam Hart. Funny little thing when I was doing my research, Lorraine does not look nearly as good as Charlize Theron in the comic book. They didn't even try. Like that, I mean, it's she looks very, very ordinary. Right. In in the couple preview pages I looked at of the graphic novel. Well, you know, 
there's superhero artists and then there's comic book artists and right. the good comic book artists don't necessarily try and go out for cheesecake as much. This is because you want to have a believable character, right? You're trying to give it some gravity and some right. Because if you don't, you either get uh, Tank Girl on one end or barbed wire on the other, and <laughs> neither one of those. Neither one good. of those are really kind of the character you're looking for, and it's something that's a period piece more or less. The um, director of photography was Jonathan Sella. Sela. Ceiling? Again, we're 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 doing well here. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna have to start putting things like you know in uh, phonetically. So yes, in our just, in our notes. Yeah, exactly. Because we're super professional. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We have notes because we're super professional. Super professional. He also worked on Deadpool two and John Wick, and did a lot of music videos, from what I could tell see that doesn't which, show yeah all, not right? at all not at all lots of 80s neon lots of purple one of the things i have here in my notes is is just they really like to follow lorraine around and they really like to uh photograph her back in this movie <laughs> i mean she has an excellent back but yeah, you can't argue that you can't argue that you but just, i like the point of view aspect that they're trying to go through they did it just enough that it didn't become annoying yeah and they did some interesting top-down shots that I really liked. Yeah. And it wasn't it didn't go so far as to become gimmicky or that sort of thing. So, I think it worked. Yeah. I think it was pretty cool. So, we got to talk about music cuz Oh yeah. The music might be it's the single sp- best thing about this movie. Even even better than the fight scenes. If That's I hadn't st- seen those fight scenes in a bunch of other movies, maybe uh, not okay but yeah. the 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 80s soundtrack it was it's such a good 80s soundtrack it is because it's not overdone it's it, it they don't use all the same things i mean granted they use 99 left balloons but that aside it's a german version it's the german version and then they've got tom Schilling in there right which is just fantastic yeah and the fact that they used cat people from david bowie right is a great shout. Right. And I really like their decision to, every time there's a fight scene, they turn up the volume. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, you know you're about ready to head into something hectic. Right. Because the the music always gets turned way up right as there's a fight scene about to break out. Right. And then stops as soon as it's over, whether that's the end of the song or not. It's right. Like, it just, it'll, they'll just chop it right out. I but mean, it if works. it was a 90s movie, you would have heard that with the record scratch <laughs> at the end of it. But this one, they straight cut out. I appreciate that much more, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in the 90s, I'm quite done with the record scratch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still waiting for record scratch the movie. Speaking of, granted, it's an 80s reference slash 90s reference. I thought it was funny how they had that snippet of Kurt Loder yeah. on MTV. <laughs> sampling. Talking about sampling. This new thing called sampling. And what does it mean? <laughs> well, you know what the best part of that was? is the complete banality of it. He's talking about a major geopolitical event right and then after that sampling (laughs) that was so mtv news in the 80s in the early 90s it's like we are it was fluff all across whether it was serious or not yeah so you could turn on a diamond's like and the manson family was found to have killed three people in the hollywood hills next up water skiing squirrels <laughs> and here's the new single from madonna yeah exactly <laughs> one thing it was funny though I, it was funny to remember that kurt loader was young at some point in time in his life yeah 
<laughs> yeah, it's crazy. He actually had, instead of gaunt and wrinkled and aged, kind of like uh, um, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. Yes. In this, he actually looked young. like he, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Exactly. He, <laughs> fresh out of college, Kurt Loader. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. I really liked the Blue Monday cover. It's actually pretty good. And then the uh, Father Figure by George Michael works actually really well when it's juxtaposed against that fight scene yeah. in uh, Gascione's apartment. Right. Well, and I think that it kind of rang with the relationship that she had with Gascione too, I think, a little bit. Yeah, maybe that the, the, maybe she was sort was, of the younger, she was the a, younger, fresher agent that hadn't exactly. kind of still innocent. Kind of in the same place where... Where Delphine is at, right? Exactly. Right. So, I mean, they, I obviously do not go into that at any length. Right. But that was kind of the vibe that I got when I was watching it. That Because it felt like even if the song that was playing wasn't lyrically related to what was happening, right. there was something about the overall thing of the song, whether it was the tone or the singer or whatever else, that tied into yeah. whatever was happening when the music was playing. Right. That's why I said, that's why the soundtrack is so good. They picked the music to go with the movie. They didn't just say, we need 1780 songs. Where do we slap them in here for commercial value? Right. The fact that they chose Cities and Dust by Susie and the Banshees yeah. is a perfect, you couldn't pick a better song to sort of encapsulate what was going on in Berlin right. at the time. I loved just being a huge Public Enemy fan. I was just so happy that there was a Public Enemy song in there. <laughs> and it was happening at that I don't know if you'd call it a swap meet or whatever that was that was going on where... Sort of looked like a East German swap meet, you know? <laughs> and then I'm I'm guessing they got Marilyn Manson to do the Stigmata cover because they couldn't get Ministry's permission. That would be my guess. Which makes more sense, too, because it literally sounds just like the original. There's no difference whatsoever between... <laughs> <laughs> between the ministry version and the and the Marilyn Manson version. And then the additional score work by Tyler Bates. Really good stuff. Actually, I was listening to it in my car and it's like it's yeah. great driving music. Yeah. Well, my it's like cruising around like I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my wife said this sounds like the 80s version of John Wick music, which is I'm like, well, that could be cuz he wrote the John Wick music. There you go. But it had a very 80s vibe to it. So, yeah. I mean, the John Wick stuff still very synthesizer-y and whatever else, but this one had the right settings on the synthesizers to really pull out that, that any of that any '80s background music you could possibly think of. Absolutely, in the movie. I mean credit to him for not just revamping what he's already done. He right. he definitely dug in and tried to find an '80s sound, even though you can still sort of hear his trademark in there. But you know what you didn't hear? Batman music. So it's definitely, it's definitely a plus from Skyfall. That's, that's true. That's true. That's a, they've got one up on Skyfall on that one. It'll be interesting to see which of these podcasts we drop first to see whether people can pick up on that reference other than what we just mentioned. I don't know. I feel like that's going to be a running thing for me. I think so, too. <laughs> Until yeah. we get the Batman spy movie, in which case I can say, no, it's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> so now we should get into... The uh, actors, or as we like to call them, the Bond girl and Bond guys. Yes, sir. Our James Bond of this movie is obviously Charlize Theron as Lorraine Broughton. And my six's most deadly agent. Beautiful, sexy, capable. She's pretty awesome. Indeed. <laughs> she was also the producer and worked for five years on the project to get it off the ground. That's crazy. That is crazy to think about that. So that means that her production company must have bought that. Which makes you wonder how much attachment she had to the actual graphic novel 
or just the idea that was presented in the graphic novel. I think it's more the idea. I think it just sounded really appealing to her. If you think about the roles that she's taken on. Right. She's like, I want to be a, I want to be an action star in my own right. Yeah. I want to be Jane Wick. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, mission accomplished. Indeed. I know I'm skipping ahead a little, but I did read that they are still trying to do a sequel, but it may, it may end up being like a streaming thing. It may be on Netflix it's nothing wrong or with something that, though. like that. It didn't do too bad in the in the box office. It did um, ninety eight million, and the budget was thirty million. So, at least <laughs> tripled its its budget. So I, that can't be too bad. Exactly. And I always think about every time I start looking at numbers, I always think about Kevin Smith because everything that I've ever heard from Kevin Smith talk about is as long as he breaks even, he doesn't really care. Right. Because that'll allow him to make another movie. To make the next film, yeah, exactly. So long, as, as long as he pays back his debts. People keep giving him more money. People keep giving him more money to do stuff. Yeah. I didn't even realize that it did that well. Because I, I don't remember being in the theaters that long. In fact, when I saw it the first time, I saw it at one of those discount theaters. Um, I'm not even sure if I saw it in the theater. I think I might have seen it on demand first. Yeah. Like, so, surprising that it did, I mean, obviously wasn't like it was a special effects heavy film or anything like that. So it was a lot of live bodies in actual places. Right. Uh, in fact, I think, speaking of which, like the only scene that looked really bad and obviously fake was the very beginning where Gascoigne gets offed. You could just tell that that was not where that actually happened. Oh, yeah. I'm, the green screen was <laughs> strong. <laughs> the power of the green screen was very, very strong, strong in that scene. It was very comp together in After Effects or no doubt. <laughs> something like, similar. It's like, we can't get the weather the way we want it, so we'll just fix it in post. Yeah. Um, but I, it would be interesting to see what a sequel would be. Yeah. Because at this point, she's blowing her cover everywhere, but in the U.S., so where can she go in the 90s? This is a desk job. Do you think they would do that too? Do you think they would make it change the era? Why not? But still make it historical. I think that would actually be really cool. Sure. I mean, the Cold War is effectively over. I guess you could go with like a maybe in 93 or 95, the last Cold War spy story or something. Yeah. But I mean, she's a triple agent that everybody knows who she is now. Right. So it's not like she can go back to England. She's on a plane. She would have to undergo extensive surgery to her face. And have to become someone else entirely. (laughs) She cracked uh, two teeth while training. Yeah. The fight scenes for this movie. Just from clenching her teeth. It wasn't even... I was kind of let down when I found that out initially. I was like, really? She broke two teeth? And I realized, oh, it was just from... Wasn't She didn't actually get... Punched or anything like that. I know she's done other action type films, but I can imagine that this one was a lot more intensive than anything she's done previously. Yeah. And so, you know, most people have, when they're not comfortable with that kind of stuff, do tend to get very, very tense. Right. And the adrenaline is just to the max. Exactly. Because she's training with people that could literally kill her. Yeah. (laughs) If they wanted to. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're trying to make her look like she could kill them if she wanted to. Which, by the way, they did very successfully. And And the fighting style that she had looked exactly like what a six-foot-tall woman would do against a six-foot-four man who's twice her weight. Right. She was There's a lot of blocking, a lot of parrying, a lot of using her forearm. I mean, she wasn't in there trying to punch people like a superhero. She was in there trying to punch a person like she's trying to just get that person 
down on down the ground. Down to the ground. A lot of I remember seeing a lot of kicks to the knee that sort of send them yep. send them backwards and collapsing on themselves. And trying to utilize the heel on those shoes to do damage while she's doing it. Right. Plus, she must use that Aikido move to get the pistol out of the dude's hand like 18 times in there. Yeah. But it looks so natural and effective every time she did it. Well, she practiced a lot. Right. She had eight personal trainers and also trained with Keanu Reeves. Whoa. Um, at the <laughs> at the same time that he was preparing for John Wick too, so Jane Wick. Well, you know, Mister uh, Leech 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 Leech. <laughs> we, we decided on Leech Leech. Mister Leech uh, was uh, killing two birds with one stone, I guess, on that action. Healthy competition makes everybody a better actor, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So what do you think about uh, James McAvoy as Percival? Well, I, I, I think him. I think he did a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think he went a little over the top? Like he over, uh, overacted yeah, it just I, a touch? I think that they, he embraced the whole anarchy thing a little more than I found believable, particularly at the end when he's you know bitching about king and country and how there's nothing in there. It's like, well... Right, his did you give mo- a crap about it? His to little begin monologue with? at the end, yeah, yeah, because he just he had it, it, totally the whole nihilist attitude. He didn't he didn't come off as professional at one point in time, except for when he was by himself, right, doing stuff out of his cast or whatever else. Right, and maybe that's what they wanted him to do. Maybe they wanted him to come off that way because I mean, she even says it when they're walking down the street. She's like, "I don't buy the bullshit that you're doing. I've right. seen your record, even the black stuff." Yeah. Right. I know you're not an incompetent idiot, but you keep playing on there. And that's why I don't trust you. Right. So he obviously was trying to employ it to his own effect. Maybe if they'd had some kind of an establishment scene that explained the photograph with him and Gas going a little bit more, where yeah. he wasn't being that guy. Right. So at least you got to feel that this was a real professional person that Who? that actually cared about his country at one point in time. Right. Because at the end, he just he kind of feels like a caricature. Yeah. And he felt more like a snitch or a, or a contact than he did a spy. Right. I wonder if some of that's to help the narrative along, to keep you guessing, thinking maybe he's the satchel or whatever else. Right. Because this whole movie is basically a gigantic two-hour misdirect. Of whose satchel. Of whose satchel is. When, mm-hmm. like, if you're paying attention, you already know it's her. Right. And, of course, I saw that movie, uh, what was that movie called? Against All Odds with Kevin Costner, where uh, he played the spy. Right, or he was the Russian mole, but nobody knew. But his job was to find the Russian mole. Right. Right, and you don't know this through the whole... I mean, it was done the same way. You don't know it's him until the very, very end of it. Mm -hmm. But spoiler alert, sorry. The movie came out in 1987. (laughs) If you haven't watched it by now, I don't care. Um, (laughs) But it was was a very similar premise with a lot less punchy, stabby, stabby. Right. Um, But maybe you have to have heightened characters in that situation to take your attention away from the clues that they kept throwing in there if you were looking for them. Over and over and over again. Yeah. It took me three times to catch most of them, but once I was focused, I saw they were all there. He was really like one decade off with all the nihilism he was throwing out there. Yes. If it was a 90s movie, he'd be right at home there. (laughs) Or late 70s even, during the punk movement. I mean, all those things would have fit, but like I said, he just kind of seemed like a caricature. Of, yeah. of what they were trying to do. And maybe, like I said, maybe that was the point. And this is not towards James McAvoy, so to speak, but more as how his character was written. It was really weird to wrap my head around when he kills Spyglass, but then takes so much effort to make sure his family gets across. Right. It just... The, the, the one little piece of humanity that sticks out in the guy. Right. He's honoring the deal he made. 
Because he knew that Spyglass was more concerned about his family. Right. Although it could have been, too. I guess you could have thought to yourself, okay, well, that way he still looks like he's on the straight and narrow with MI6 and, and the CIA. Right. And that way it looks like he did his best to try and make everything right. happen. And and so he can continue to play both sides. Right. Exactly. And then I would argue that the Bond girl in this movie is Delphine. Oh, for sure, because she sleeps with James Bond. Exactly. Uh, and then dies. Sophia Butella. Lovely. She was fun as the uh, bladed. It's Samuel L. Jackson's bodyguard in Kingsman. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. She also played the uh, mummy queen in The Mummy with Tom Cruise. Bad movie. You know, <laughs> I have a story for you, not for this podcast, <laughs> but a story about The Mummy, which is quite entertaining. <laughs> that That movie was... A disaster before it ever started shooting. Sure, it had Tom Cruise in it. Well, even before that, <laughs> even before Tom Cruise was attached to it, that movie was doomed from the get-go. <laughs> Let's see, John Goodman. Yeah. As the CIA big man. God, I love him. There's there's very little that he can do wrong in my in my Agreed. mind. Agreed. Right. He's always just pitch perfect in everything he does. And his Chemistry is so good with Charlize Theron. Absolutely. It's like they've known each other forever. Before we begin, sir, may I formally request that Mr. Kurtzfeld be removed from the debriefing? Request denied. But to make him more comfortable, I could stand behind the mirror with everybody else. But it's a little crowded back there. Cocksucker. What did you say? Eddie Marsan. So I've only ever seen Eddie Marsan in one other thing, and that was The World's End. With... Mm-hmm. Uh, with Simon Pegg, right? The the last of the uh, uh, Cornetto trilogy. Cornetto trilogy. Yes. Yeah, he was kind of a weird little person in that, but more likable than this. Yeah, this well, that's role. a shtick, though, right? Yeah, it's just because he knows he looks kind of odd <laughs> a he, little bit. He's a character actor. Yeah, he's he's definitely got his role in it, but I, he is peculiar and someone who stands out. And not because he's attractive, but because he's interesting looking. Yes, exactly. He's got a really interesting look. And he plays this perfect nervous guy who you kind of want to pity, but... Also want to punch in the face. You also kind of want to fucking punch him in the face. He's kind of a bit annoying at the same time, but that's good acting. I mean, really. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you can pull both of those off... <laughs> <laughs> So I wanted to bring up some villains, and I'm actually, before I even bring up the main villain, I want to bring up the actor, Daniel Bernhardt, who is only accredited as soldier in IMDb, but he right. is my favorite bad guy in this whole movie. Yeah. Because the two fights between Lorraine and soldier are by far my favorite. They are freaking insane, both of them. The, the first one, when she goes across the border the first time into East Berlin and she stabs him with a keychain and yeah. he just leaves it there. Yeah, till he's done. <laughs> yeah. Just and just sort of annoyed he's just sort of annoyed when he pulls it out and then just walks on. It's mm-hmm. just so nonchalant. He's great. He's so good. And then the second one, of course, in the amazing stairwell fight where it's almost it almost becomes sexual in that fight. Especially yeah. well, he literally says Something like, uh, you're gonna take this bitch or something like that. Right. And then and then she and then she sort of gives her sort of retort. Right. And the the fight is just so nasty. And there's they're exhausted at the end of it. So yeah. you did yeah. It's, Believable at, at the very least. Yeah. 
absolutely. But he was more interesting to me, honestly, than Alexander Bremovich. I mean, I feel like he was just sort of the generic big guy that was really brutal, that had no conscience whatsoever. Right. You know, when he beats that guy to death with a skateboard. <laughs> My worst nightmares from from high school coming true before me on the screen. <laughs> but, I mean, he was okay, I guess. He was very... You could have switched out just about anybody. Yeah, well, the Although character... Although he wasn't, he wasn't written. Right, they weren't developed enough. But again, if you throw in that much plot development on it, you might be able to figure out what the MacGuffin is in right. the film. So some people have to be a little more two-dimensional. Because all the clues are there. Yeah. But they want you to see the clues. Well, and they lean so heavily into the fight scenes to distract you from the yes, clues. Absolutely. All those fight scenes, which are great. It's just kind of a strength and a weakness of the movie is just that it's a great action movie and a pretty good spy film. Right. <laughs> and and it, that's good and bad. It's a great action movie. It's just an okay spy film. Right. Well, it's an action movie with a spy film twist, yes, more or less. indeed. One other little fun fact. They asked David Bowie to play a part in the film, but he turned it down because it was shortly before his death. I think he actually knew at that point that he wasn't doing well. Right. And he actually died while they were still filming the movie. So I wonder what role they offered him, though. That's what I want to know. Was he C, maybe? Either C or I could have seen him as the contact in East Berlin. The the guy that's that, what I was thinking. Merkel, yeah, maybe as well. Although it would sure. would have been have been hilarious if he was John Goodman's part. <laughs> oh, my. oh, but that would have taken so much away from the film. I think. Yeah, probably he needed to be an ancillary character. And I was thinking if he had been Bill Skarsgård's character, the scene where in the, where he's just the bartender at the very beginning, right? Just as he David Bowie mixing drinks oh behind the bar God. and accomplishing nothing else. It would, it would have taken you out of that scene. So uh, when I watched the first time, I had no idea who Bill Skarsgård was because there wasn't an, an it. Right. So he was just a guy in the background. Right. Who then turned out to be a main character who was just a guy in the background. But you imagine Bowie? I'm just making drinks for everyone. <laughs> How are you? You know. Uh, I would have loved to have seen him as Percival too. I think he would have made an interesting person. Oh, he would have played it completely different. Oh, absolutely. And it, maybe for the better. I don't know. It certainly, I think, would have been a, a Percival that would have been more believable. Yeah. But again, maybe but not gender main to what the story was. Right. And I would have wanted 90s Bowie for that. Yeah, that's true. Like right around the I'm Afraid of Americans era. Right. David Bowie. That would have been the and best I, era for him, I think, for that movie at least. Ironically, if you tried to stick him in any kind of a main character capacity in that, I think the inherent Bowieism of the 80s would have probably <laughs> made it very uncomfortable. That's why I think he might have been good as C, because all he would have had to do is sit behind the glass and make faces. That's more true. Or less, That's true. And then get a couple of good lines in at the beginning and the end of the film. It'd be, and be less done with distracting. It. Exactly. I could certainly buy him as the head of MI6. Because if I was watching Atomic Blonde and Bowie's in every other scene. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it stops all being would... a Charlize Theron movie and starts being a David Bowie movie. Again, don't really have a problem with, <laughs> but not what we signed up for. It's not right. Atomic Blonde with the one blue eye and the one brown right. eye. That scene where she looks in the mirror with a really bright light and she's got all the bruises mm -hmm. on. She kind of looks like Bowie right there. A little bit. Like she's got almost that androgynous sort of 
Yep. Look to her right there when the, when that super bright light is on there. And, and the fact that that's exactly when Cat People comes on. Right. So it just seems sort of perfect that I'm like, that's got to be intentional. It has to be. So lots of tropes. Lots of tropes in this movie. I think it had to have them. I love, I love, love, love that Lorraine drinks vodka. Stoli, of course, straight over ice. And she drinks it no less than four times. I think it was actually more like five or six times. But I counted four consciously. <laughs> what else did we have? Microfilm, of course. It's the 80s, so. Uh. <laughs> Do you have nightmares from from doing, doing, doing reports for... <laughs> Well, (laughs) microfilm, because microfilm itself was a trope in spy movies for so, so, so long. Right. And then they just left it alone for a while. And now that it's a period piece, they can get away with using it yet again. Right. I did like, you had uh, mentioned that uh, I liked how they put it in the watch. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder why nobody's ever thought of putting secret stuff in a watch before. I did think that was really clever. I liked... See, I really liked how the coordinates to find Merkel were also in were, the watch. Were engraved in the watch. Yes. I was actually kind of hoping initially that because the very first time that I saw this movie, I wasn't paying as close attention. Yes, same here. And and I didn't realize that it was microfilm inside the watch. I initially thought, oh, what if it's engraved inside the watch? All the, the names m- are engraved right. inside the watch. Right. And Which s- would have been so so much cooler and you would have had to disassemble the entire watch before you had all the information right so that would have been very very cool did you notice that the watchmaker was um uh what was it private stiegler from inglorious bastards yeah and i i there's a name above the watch shop and i missed it every single time i did it but i wanted to see if it was the same name as the character oh (laughs) (laughs) i'll have to check the next time i watch it i love the uh tape recorder that's carved into the book. Oh my god! Yeah, and you can and hide anything in a book, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I just loved all her use of tape, of cassette tape, mm-hmm. in, in the in the entire movie, just from the beginning to like just setting it up to to spy on on Percival, all the way to like setting him up <laughs> at, right. at the end, like making him the scapegoat at the very yeah. end. At the end of the movie, she's a sound engineer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, she's the, she's Bond. She's, it's, it's Bond true. can do everything. What can't she do? Exactly. Oh, yeah. The other uh, big spy trope that is in here is meeting your enemies in a social capacity first. Right. Got to do it. It's just it's just what you do in spy movies. And Especially when the guy who's trying to kidnap you gives you a card to go there. Right. Be- yeah. Right before they kidnap you. Oh, here's this card, which is a little. <laughs> what? Ex- except. <laughs> except. When you look at it from her perspective, she knew who they were already. He yeah. says to her, you remember comrade such and such, right? And then right. she pulls off the red shoe and kills him. For only The only reason I can think of is because she's trying to save her cover because she knows she's being followed by Percival. That's where things start to dissolve a little bit. And they did seem very surprised when she suddenly attacked exactly. them. Exactly. They were very casual and easygoing and... and they like they expected her to realize what was going on, and she's rolling it off as, "Oh, they made me from the minute I was on the ground," because they knew who you were. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of conflict there between being smart and deceiving the viewer at the same. Like that—that that was the one thing I had the hardest part reconciling was that when you thought she was just a double agent, 
she was totally killing all the people that were supposed to be on her side. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, mm, okay. <laughs> Not that it really deserves too much mentioning, but the title graphics are so splashy and silly <laughs> and very 80s, I guess. Yeah. For the most part, they did get the 80s right in a lot of ways. Sure. There are a couple moments where it really, I could actually sort of remember that vibe, mm -hmm. feeling that vibe when I was living it oh so long ago. God, I'm <laughs> fucking old. I'm so fucking old. What did you think of all the Tarantinoing at the beginning of the movie? All the back and forth, back and forth, time jumping over and over um. and over again. And actually, the one that was most jarring to me was actually not at the beginning. It was at the beginning of Percival's monologue towards the end, right before he dies. Uh -huh. That one threw me the, the most. And initially, I wasn't a fan of it because and initially I couldn't quite tell that he was looking just off of camera. Right. I thought he was looking straight into camera. And I'm like, why is he suddenly breaking the fourth wall? And then I watched it a couple more times and I was like, oh, okay. I see what's going on here. Right. And the more I watched it, the more I liked it, actually, just right. because I liked a lot of the things that he was saying. But it got a little cliche and it got a little hyperbole. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I usually have a big problem with when they shift things or they, you know, they tell the story out of sequence and then they really start to throw things around. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what's going on. Looking at you, Westworld. Um, <clears throat> but in this case, it was actually it was very easy for me to follow. Mm -hmm. Where they were jumping back and forth. Where it started getting confusing for me, honestly, is when they were in Berlin and when they were in West or East Berlin and West Berlin. Mm -hmm. I was getting a little confused where things were going back and forth with that one. Right. I guess you had to tell by the cars. <laughs> because all of the East Berlin kids were dressed like West Berlin kids. Right. I guess look at the cops. <laughs> it did it did always feel and and not that this helps when you're doing a time jump, but when the story stayed in East Berlin, it definitely felt more hostile. Yes. Occasionally, I got a little confused when I saw them sitting in C's office. When it would jump from yes. the interrogation room or whatever that room is called where, they're, right. where she's telling her story. And it suddenly jumps to C's office where C is giving her a debriefing. Right. And they jump to that a lot back and forth. And the only way that I immediately knew that it, that it was two different places was seeing... Charlize Theron, not all bruised up. Right. That was really your only touchstone was clean and beat to crap. Right. Because then we've got, um, who I, I didn't talk about earlier, Toby Jones' character, Eric Gray, uh -huh. who just plays what he always plays. It's just some sort of government stooge. Yeah, some functionary. Some bureaucrat that is usually despicable, just a kind of a weasel I feel like, uh, at least in this one, they, they were trying to elevate him uh, out of the weaselly status. I mean, right. he seemed like he, he seemed like he was competent in this particular one. Right. Um, and but, he did seem to have some level of trying to actually get the greater good out of it. Exactly. Even though you do eventually figure out that they were sort of working against Lorraine. In the first place. Yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> right from the jump. I do love his reaction when he finds out that Lorraine slept with yeah. Delphine. So you uh, you made contact with the French operative, did you? Mm, please, tell us more. Ooh, hello. What was she wearing? <laughs> mm, delightful. Maybe we should go to the uh, the beginning of the movie. 
you know, because who doesn't like Ronald Reagan? <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting place to start with mm-hmm. the Ronald Reagan clip. That was actually one of the bits that didn't work for me is even though it was set in the 80s and right. they were trying to center it around the fall of the Berlin Wall. Right. The stakes didn't work for me. I felt yeah. like there was nothing that actually implied that something was going to change about what was going on in Germany at that time. Right. That list, as much as they tried to make it sound like it was this amazing, you know, chock full of, or they called it an atomic bomb of information. Right. You never saw an implication that it could take down the whole government. No. Other than the fact that you had a triple agent listed on it. Right. But that was all, everyone that was fighting over the list was fighting over it for personal reasons. Yes. Nobody was fighting over it to save Berlin. No. Nobody gave a shit. Or to save the crown or to save the Kremlin. It was all about their own personal interests. If anything, I was almost wondering if Percival was trying to keep the Cold War going. So he yeah. could so he could continue to make a killing selling Western wares to the East Berliners. Right. Well, maybe. Or maybe it's like everything else. I mean, they were obviously setting her up, sending her in there to do a dirty job that they couldn't get done. Perhaps they were trying to oversell the importance of what it was. She's my crow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Dirty jobs. I just cleaned out all his uh, all these spy people. Now I'm going to go clean out somebody's urinal. I really want to see Lorraine Broughton turn to camera and go, get ready to get dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the historical aspect of it actually was one of the things that was kind of the weakest because it was never developed. They never, you never saw a top level German government person anywhere or or even a top level russian person anywhere where there was any sort of implication that if the list got out the entire nation would crumble right and this goes back to my least favorite spy trope in the universe lists of agents that shouldn't exist in the first place right who are who's building these lists yeah well why are they putting them on paper <laughs> well they put everything on paper in the 80s. So. Uh, no, no. But they there's had, no excuse for it. There's no excuse for it in Skyfall. <laughs> they had floppy disks in the 80s. Ah, uh, yes. I'm sorry. The big five and a quarter. Right. They've been using lists Was since, it five and a quarter? Yeah, it was five and a half. Five and a half. And a three and, and a quarter. Three and a quarter. I, yeah. Well, it's they, been a while. <laughs> they've been making lists since, you know, Sean Connery was knee high to Little Nelly. I want a list. A list of all the agents, including myself, and all yes. the bad things I did. Absolutely. And make sure you put all the women that I've slept with, because their names are kind of funny. And <laughs> I don't know how I keep meeting women with names like that, and but I the, do. And all the women that I've acted completely problematic and inappropriate with. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but lists. But lists, yes. I And this one particularly had no... Like you said, no ramifications. At least in Skyfall, some agents got died. Indeed. You know? You never saw a single agent get died. No, nobody, yeah, nobody did nothing. Well, agents got died, just not because they were on the list. <laughs> yeah. It's bullshit. It is total bullshit. It is fun to watch a spy movie that's a period piece where I'd been alive doing it, um, where I'd been alive during it, I mean. <laughs> I didn't know you were in a spy movie, Ben. Is there something you want to tell me? <laughs> but yeah, just to see something where I had been around when those things were going on so I could really get a feel of 
the vibe was accurate for once. Right. So when we get into the movie, the credits roll and Lorraine walks into this debriefing room and sort of establishes that she's going to be telling the story of what happened. And although the timeline jumps all over the place, basically it gets established that the watch, which was stolen from the dead agent, Gascion, has incited a highly sensitive list, which... <laughs> maybe that's the division thing. So it had every intelligence agent on both sides in Berlin. It also contains the identity of a double agent named Satchel. We already know who that is. Shh, don't ruin it. Who has been highly sought after by MI6, and that it's apparently an atomic bomb of information that could continue the Cold War for another 30 years. From here, Lorraine is sent in by MI6 to find and obtain the list or the identity of the double agent. Or both. Or both. During the debriefing of the mission, we meet C, who actually looks just like C in the comic book. Really? He was the one person that they really? got dead dead on. The casting was dead on for him. Fantastic. So I'm like, I know that guy from a bunch of movies. I look up on IMDb. He's only been in Game of Thrones that I've ever seen. That's right. I forgot he was in Game of Thrones. Just yeah. the total dickhead dad. Of- yes. <laughs> so then she goes in and immediately the guys pick her up from the airport and they sort of already know who she is. And she sort of acts surprised, even though she knows them as well because she's working with them. But Percival is behind them. So she, we can only guess, keeps her cover by killing them. And that little fight scene, though, inside the car is is pretty awesome it, with the, the shoe heel and the... <laughs> right. Well, and that dude, oh, he face plants. Oh, it's just... It, oh, yeah. Uh, when, and, he, when he falls out of the car, you mean? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, he didn't roll nothing. He was no, just, just a dead lump on uh, the ground. That uh, was so disconcerting to me. It was. Because you usually will... The stunt guy's got to roll when they go out a moving car like that. And I think that might have been CGI. I don't know, but he was just like, "Boom! I'm dead. My skin's on the road." There's, yeah, there's a couple bone chilling moments in this movie like that. That, and the kid that gets killed with the skateboard. Yeah, that one when he's just laying there dead on the ground. That's yeah, fucking frightening. Yeah. Okay. So, (laughs) moving on. Uh, (laughs) So then we meet Percival at the uh, East Berlin swap meet. And he's initially, he's kind of this fun asshole. Um, right. Wheeler kind of, dealer. Yeah, kind of an anti-hero. You know, wakes up in the morning with two chicks in his bed. Right, right. You know, just kind of cool. And it just has that cool vibe at the swap meet, too, where, you know, kids are skateboarding and breakdancing. And they're all just sort of embracing Western culture. Kind right. of like what was probably actually going on right about then. Exactly. And then we see Delphine watching. So we sort of get introduced to her a little bit. What's this girl? Who's this cute girl on the motorcycle? She's taking pictures. Kind of sexy. And then we meet Alexander Bremovich. KGB. Looking for spyglass. <laughs> Even though he talks nothing like that. In well, you know movie. what's you know what's funny is I initially thought he was a, a GDR agent. I didn't realize. I thought he was just a German agent. Right. right. Sorry, GDR. That's the Welcome. German Democratic Republic. Look it up in your history books. Welcome to the GDR. Yes. Welcome to the GDR. And then when I heard his name, obviously he's not. When, when you throw a Bremovich, when there's a Vich at the end of it, yeah, 
it was sort of weird that there wasn't any German. They were in Germany, but I, I. Well, Spyglass was the only Stasi was, officer that was in there. Right, and everyone, everyone else was either they British, were English or they were Russian. Yeah, and or John Goodman, you had one English or American person. Well, technically, there's two American people there, but I won't tell you who the other one is. Mm, who could it be? Who could it be, Scott? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So I just have this in my notes because I took my notes in chronological order. Okay. So right after uh, Bremovich beats the living shit out of that guy with the skateboard, which again, not only when he falls on the ground and he's dead laying there, but right when he hits him, the, the, blood, splatter? the blood splatter on the lens. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but so right after all that, when he shakes those guys down, then you get ice bath number two with... Uh-huh. For, Lordy. She wasn't even sore at that point. No, this is pre-getting we so, beat up. She's just doing that. That's just her regimen. That's what keeps her skin looking young and fresh, I, I mean, I, I know I do that every week. You don't, know. Uh, bags, never, bags eyes from the 7-Eleven, I'm in. I mean, I don't look nearly <laughs> as good as she does, but God <laughs> damn it, I do it. That would be a little weird if you did. <laughs> We'd probably be having a much different conversation. Indeed. <laughs> So then we see uh, Percival breaks into Lorraine's room. And I love that little fight that happens. <laughs> and she says, uh, you've got some balls breaking in here. And he goes, you should see my balls. You'd be really impressed. <laughs> it's a great line. <laughs> and then we've got the uh, the fight inside. Gascoigne, I think. Is Gascoigne's apartment. And the, uh, the use of the hose as a weapon is pretty friggin' cool. And a scaling device. And yes, and a repelling, de- which that was very, very reminiscent when she repels out the window with that hose, even though it's a hose and not a little thing coming from his from her belt. I want to say it was the world is not enough, where Bond is in a bank, okay, and he has to escape the bank, and he sort of ropes a baddie. I don't know if it's around his leg, around his neck, or whatever it is, yeah. but he jumps out the window, and the baddie is the one that stops the rope for him. I remember that. I don't and remember which one, but I do remember that. And, I mean, this is taking right, a page right out of the Bond handbook. Did you uh, Did you catch that, that particular German agent, when he gets pulled by the rope, throws out a Wilhelm scream? Yes. I, I have that in my notes, actually. I was. It's the only one I caught in the whole movie, too. It's the only one that's in there. It made me laugh so hard, though. But it's like, well, there goes another stormtrooper. <laughs> it's funny. You know, I don't know if everyone laughs now when they hear the Wilhelm scream, but... <laughs> well, it's got to the point where filmmakers throw it in on purpose. Just, just for comedic effect. Right, because they know you're going to know it's a stormtrooper. Right. Or, or somebody from an Indiana Jones movie. Right. Or anything that has to do with George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. Right. Exactly. I also noticed, too, another thing that they sort of stole from Bond, especially early Bond movies, is during that fight sequence, they kind of speed up. There's a one little moment where I can tell that they sped the film up. Okay. And to make the action look more dynamic and, and more forceful. You know, when you see it in like old Bond movies, it's super obvious. Right, you because, don't see them doing that a lot anymore. But they found just the right moment. But since I've now watched this movie about four times, <laughs> but it works. You know, for the most part, nobody nobody notices except me. But that's mainly because I'm a video editor and <laughs> television has been ruined for me. Oh, <laughs> not entirely. Yay! <laughs> just just uh, unscripted reality. <laughs> 
So then it cuts over to uh, Percival in his apartment. And he's got, that's when you sort of discover all his wares. He's got porn and whiskey and... Machiavelli. Machiavelli. That is such a great line, though, when they're walking. It's a double pleasure to deceive the deceiver. Nicola Machiavelli. It's on your shelf. Oh, my God. I think I fucking love you. That's too bad. <laughs> so then she goes across the border to East Berlin for the first time, and we get that great, great fight with Bremovich's soldier. The only thing about it, after repeated viewing was it seemed a little easy for her to sort of lose him. Yeah. I think he like kicks her off stage or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then she just sort of disappears. Right. But movies. But (laughs) from the storytelling aspect, he tells her, he just wants to talk to you. Right. Why are you beating us up? Right. So it's not like he could go after her. His job wasn't to beat her to death at that point. Right. His job was just to bring her back to Bremovich. So he walked in thinking, hey, Bremovich wants to talk to you, and she's going to be like, okay, let's go talk to Bremovich. She's like, oh no, I'm MI6. You're the bad guy. Which actually makes it even more believable why he's just annoyed that he's just been stabbed with a keychain. With a key! Because he's trying not to fuck her up. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so maybe he lets her get away because the intent was for her to go back to doing whatever she was doing. Right. And he's like, man. I, I got a hole in my cheek. This just isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to say she got away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm over this. It's not <laughs> like Bremovich could take him, so he's probably fine. No reward is worth this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then she finally meets Pennywise. Pennywise uh, <laughs> the clown, who I'm going to say right now, he, he was probably the most interesting character in that entire movie. I thought so, too. He, he was kind of Lorraine's cue, in he a way. He was. Because he was always cleaning up her messes, or yeah. he was sort of the, the parachute for her all right. the time. Right, but his character really was the disaffected East German youth. Yes, absolutely. The, the finger to the watchtower. He um, was the one guy that you needed more of, actually, in that movie. Yes, because he was believable. Yeah. He wasn't... There are only two believable characters in it. There's Charlize Theron's character and his character. She's believable because she has to be to cover the lie all the way through the film. He's believable because he is that character in that period of time that would be doing this sort of thing. Right. Right? When she asked him, it's an interesting place to meet. He's like, yeah, but now they're used to me being up here. Right. The whole reason he sits up there with the chair where the cameras are at is to be a disaffected East German youth who's saying, fuck you to the man. Right. And so can have conversations him. right under their nose. Right. Because they'll just ignore him. Right. He's the only one who's competent in this entire movie. Yeah. Everything he does works right. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Everything. Even making drinks as a bartender, apparently. I just thought he was a really good bartender, From- he says. Yeah, from the bartender to making passports. Right. To setting- Getting her the right gun, timing everybody with the umbrellas, playing a fake Swedish ambassador because he has a Volvo. 
<laughs> He's even there to make sure she gets to at the very, very end. Hands down the most capable guy. Absolutely. I need this guy working for me. Oh, my God. I'd kill for a guy like that to be working for <laughs> he me. He needs to keep the white makeup at home. Well, yeah. And the puffy little clown suit. That needs to stay. That... While I was watching, my wife said um, that he would make a really good Joker. I'm like, I feel like he might be typecasting himself if he went with another white-faced clown. Just saying. <laughs> You might want to steer clear of that for a little while. Yeah, I love how he's the cleanup man, though. Yeah, exactly. He's quiet. He's unimposing. And like I said, you didn't know who he was in 2017. Right. And so it worked. If that movie would have came out now, people yeah. would have been like, what's it doing in here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do that thing with your eye. Do that thing with your eye. That's going to be something that's going to unfortunately follow him around, which is too bad. Well, you know. Although I'm sure as he gets older, he'll look. Maybe. Maybe different. Look at the career Christopher Reeve had after Superman. Oh. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what. um, That kind of leads us talking about Pennywise into Act 2. Because, I Mm -hmm. mean, it's kind of the point where she says, all right, something's afoot here. I mean, we know there's deeper things going on. But she realizes that Percival is probably not going to be her best avenue to get where she needs to get at. Right. So she goes to the watchmaker to get her own independent person to help her take care of it. Mm -hmm. And that sort of kicks off the next side of it, the second act, which I call the betrayal act, because literally the longest act of the movie is everybody screwing everybody else over in it. The movie might as well be called Everyone's Lying to Everyone. Pretty much. Because no one is telling the truth to anyone in this movie. No. And and it... (laughs) Well, that's not true. She tells the truth one time to Delphine, and she says... Your eyes change when you tell the truth. You say, right. well, I better stop because it's going to get me killed. Right. Right. But she's sleeping with Delphine to get what she wants. And, and she does. And she does. End. In the end, she gets what she wants. Another Bond trope. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, she, this is kind of where it diverges. Then she finds out that Percival has spyglass and spyglass has everything memorized. And she realizes, okay, so he's playing a different game on his own. He's not telling me all everything right. that he knows. Plus, there's an alternate, easier way to get around this, but he's not doing it. Why is he not doing it? Right? right. And you have to wonder if she's formulating a plan at this point in time of how she can get out of this whole thing entirely. Because what happens when she takes this guy across who has this list memorized? Is she assuming that because she's rescued him and his family that he's going to keep it to himself? Because he already knows who she is. Or is she going to have to eliminate him at some point? Because she seems like she's really trying to save him. And earnestly, she didn't just swim out of the car. She tried to save him to keep him from drowning. So I think her play was, I will protect him and get what he needs. And he will keep his mouth shut about me. And then there's no microfilm to back anything up. Right. But I mean, really, that whole the whole second act of it is... Her realizing the spyglass is a person, her arranging to get spyglass out, Percival doing the double cross on her to get what he wants out of it because he has the information already. And then you start realizing all of this is coalescing at the end of it when Percival ends up shooting him because her idea with the umbrellas derails where he was trying to go with the KGB, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, he walked over and told the KGB, by the way, she's this person, so you need to kill her, right? So, and it's a great set piece, but it, it's really like one long scene right. with a couple of breaks right? where you get all the other elements that are in it, but it's basically, okay, I need to get this guy. I'm going to get this guy. Percival screwed me over from getting this guy. Now I need to go screw over Percival. Percival. 
So on a lighter note, <laughs> the love scene. <laughs> the scene. The scene. The scene. Um, apparently, it was filmed in f- just 45 minutes. Did you think they needed more? Apparently not, based on what I saw. And how do you block that shot? <laughs> I really... As a director. Well, and there's some interesting angles going on in there, yes, too. Yes, How do you architect that camera movement feels like there might have been some rehearsals i'm just saying it'd be nice to know it would be nice to know um random observation for my wife and this is actually completely out of context but then again this movie jumps around all the time too so exactly screw it um so there's a moment where lorraine is in her hotel room and she's listening uh to some of her tape on headphones (laughs) and my wife was sitting next to me when we were watching this and she's like, no female listens to headphones without moving their hair out of the goddamn way first. Just a random observation <laughs> I wanted to throw in there. It's just funny when you get different viewership watching a movie that they normally wouldn't watch and what yeah. they... Ob- the, the observations they bring out. A little bit different. It slips into act three of the of this story, but I don't know if they were just trying to point out the fact that she is a complete rookie at this whole spy thing. Mm-hmm. But if you know, so- if you call somebody on the phone, why would you call somebody on the well, phone? Hold on, no, 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 I, I'm I'm okay with that. You're hiding the gun under the bed because you think he's going to come and get you because you called him out on the phone. Why are you in your damn dark room listening to music on your headphones? Why would you leave yourself open to that? Correct. Why? I mean, if you like developing photos in your underwear, fine. But maybe you need to get a shoulder holster or something or so- something because. Or a motion detector outside your door? Or I don't know. Something. One headphone off? One headphone on? Yeah, just something to hear the door open or I don't know. I know there's no Bluetooth. I mean, I know Percival's sneaky guy. He made it into Lorraine's room without... But Right. But you know he's a sneaky guy. And you know he's probably on his way. Correct. So why are you listening to music? That scene drove me bonkers <laughs> okay <laughs> we do need to talk about this fucking stairwell scene because it is oh my god yes it is glorious first of all it's all one shot yes or at least it's edited to look it's like edited one. to look like one shot because everything is a follow yeah i'm not gonna say it's as good as the follow shot in children of men have you ever seen children of i men? have that that follow shot was the one that blew my mind because that was the first like long stretching one shot that I had ever seen in a movie. And I was just, I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Right. And then this one, I actually didn't even realize it was a one shot for a very long time just because I'm, I was so into the fight choreography and Mm -hmm. everything that was going on. And the fact that this is the one time in the whole movie where during the action, they cut all music. It is dead. And you just hear them fighting and grunting and dying and right. bleeding and everything else. And it works so well. It is so impactful. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the little things, like when uh, she takes up the, the first two guys and she's going down the stairs to where Spyglass is at. And he's sitting there bleeding out, but he's like, two. There's two, two of them. There's two right? of them. I mean, it's such a subtle little piece, but he's still... It, it, it still engages the character in some way other than him just laying on a lump in the ground. Like, right. where did the guy go? He's not just a he's victim. He's not passively sitting around. He's trying to help her get where he needs to be at. But my God, the brutality with the first two guys, 
Yeah. I kind of expected, but those other guys are just kind of like average schmoes, right? Yeah. And she just lays into him with the gun that has no bullets. That was what was even funnier. She's like, there's there's no ammunition here. And then she's patting the dead dudes down, trying to, nothing. All right, fine, I'll beat him upside the head with it. Right. And she does. <laughs> I just love those kicks to the knee. Yes. Where it sends them flat on their face. It's just such, ugh. I, th- I this is really where David Leitch's style really is so strong. Just that whole gun fu fight porn. John John Wick fight porn. Yes. Just really, really works here. And again, Theron makes it work. Yeah. Well, she sells it. Like uh, Yeah. I mean she had I don't know if I mentioned this before. She had eight trainers for this movie. Right. And I'm <laughs> sure she was fighting a couple of them on screen. Uh, yeah, exactly. But I mean, between her and the soldier actor, mm-hmm. they're exhausted at the end of it. And they should be because they probably did do a big chunk of that all in one shot anyway. Right. But the fact that they're both exhausted, she falls down when she tries to get up, which I think the first time she did it was intentional. The second time when she has her back against the wall with the the yeah. corkscrew, I think she literally just fell down because she was exhausted. The first one felt a little bit WWE to me. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Just a little bit. But, yeah, yeah. And then I actually went back and I was, the part where she sort of half falls down the stairs and then slams against the wall at the halfway point mm-hmm. in the stairwell, I was, immediately I was like, I wonder if that was actually her. <laughs> and I went on IMDb, turns out the fall down the stairs was a Canadian stunt woman. Mm-hmm. But her slamming against the wall is, in fact, her. But that right. wall has been padded. Right. But I just, I had to find out. I was like, God, did she do all this? The, the thing that looked like it hurt the most out of that entire scene was uh, Mutton Chop Guy when he falls on the staircase. Yeah. I don't know how they pulled that off without breaking that dude's spine. But I I cringed every time I watched it. Is that the is that the nesty plunge guy or is that a different? Yeah, it just goes flat back and yeah, lands flat on the back. stairs. Oh my no god! No roll. No, it's like the guy that falls out in the damn road. It just, I'm like, it just, it just takes. As it. someone who's <laughs> fallen on stairs before <laughs> and landed on his rear end and not on his back, that was bad enough. But then just platform diving onto a staircase, yeah, it's insanity. I don't care how much padding was back there. It. No, that guy was like, and I'm done for the day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sit in my trailer and <laughs> drink vodka. Yeah, exactly. Stoli on the rocks. So while you hate that scene, I know you hate the scene with, with Delphine, but man, that when Percival does kill her. Oh, it's uh, terrible. I hate it. I can't. Uh, it's Why are just, all the actors in this movie really just good at selling death? That's upsetting. and why am i why am i just fine with it i get done watching the movie that was cool (laughs) (laughs) i guess i'll go upstairs and eat something (laughs) the end of act two is really where um merkel tells her you know she's everybody's dead she's like he's like you're not right and i mean that that's literally the end of the 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 second act of the show because it's all about revenge after that. But man, does she, they make her look so bad right after she comes out of that water. Oh, I know the bruising and everything. And, I, and we can't undersell, we can't undersell uh, Eddie Marzan's performance down there drowning. Yeah. You, it just, it's, it just seems so tragic. It really does. Cause I mean, just, he's got the whole, 
I'm floating these bubbles on my eyebrows. Again, everyone knows how to die in this movie. Right. Really well. Right. <laughs> Although nobody drowns with a full uh, body full of air. Yeah, there's no lungs like, full coughing. of air. There's no. <gasps> yeah, there's no bubbles coming out. But I mean, literally, everybody knows how to look dead in this movie. It is so great. I don't know where you learn how to be dead from a skateboard beating, but that guy looked dead. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> so then we kind of get to that time jump moment where Percival starts his monologue right and he starts talking about how he feels like he's no longer the good guy trying to do good work he just really he just feels like a pawn in the game and it sort of explains all his cynicism and how at this point he's just in it for himself and he doesn't really give a shit about country he doesn't give a shit about right protecting anybody else despite the fact that he does even like we said before even protecting spyglass's family that's that's means to an end for him as well. Right. It still makes it look like he's still on the up and up. Right. So so this this time jump back and forth as he's doing this monologue, I think it works, but again, it was really jarring to me the very first time I saw it. After after the third time I actually began to like it <laughs> a lot more. Gels a little better in your brain. It did. And that's sort of when we finally really understand that Lorraine is Satchel. And then we also find out, that's when we also find out kind of in that same area that uh, Lorraine has achieved her Bondian moment of of making Delphine fall for her and getting her those pictures that allow her to pin the identity of Satchel on Percival. Right. Do you think at the end Delphine knew that she was Satchel too? I'm not sure if it mattered. At the, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure if it mattered for her because no. because she was so new to everything. I, yeah, maybe the picture for just she was in love with her, so she was trying to give her more ammunition to support whatever she wanted, right? Without actually knowing what her real agenda was, right? And I'm sure she knew. I, I got to think she knew that that she was Satchel. Everybody else seems to. Yeah, know <laughs> that somebody was Satchel somewhere. It seemed awfully common information there. Yeah, exactly. Also, this area is where it becomes the the Lord of the Rings ending, where we get the first ending. Yes, where <laughs> where she's in, we see her back in the interrogation room, and she brings out the pictures of Percival meeting with the KGB, and it sort of seals the deal that this is Satchel. That's her story, right? And she's sticking with it, and here's the evidence behind it. But then it's not over because then she walks out. And suddenly it's three days later and she's in, what is it, Paris? Yeah. And she meets up with Bremovich. And I, I I will say the first time I saw this, again, I was actually surprised. <laughs> I feel stupid now. After I've seen it a couple of times, I felt really dumb that I didn't realize that she was working with Bremovich, at least on the surface level, to get what she wanted. Right. <clears throat> um, I don't feel bad. I didn't realize it either. So I thought I felt like that scene was really really cool, despite the they had a they had a case of the bad guy guns. They did a case of the bad guy guns happened when she was hiding behind the the couch. Yeah, the bullets were the, clearly going through the couch, but not where she was at. Right, even though she, they were literally all around her. Right, they it was they literally drew an outline around. <laughs> it was a Bugs her Bunny cartoon. It was a Bugs Bunny shootout. <laughs> I did like that though that she had the gun in the ice. Yeah. Yeah. In the ice like that. Planet ahead. Very fitting. Well, you know, how could she grab an ice cold uh, gun? Well, she bathes in ice, so it's not like that bothers her at all. 
<laughs> right. It's just comfortable. Right. I did something that I've noticed about this movie all the way through is that there is a lot of care taken in every scene in how things look and what mm-hmm. that means. Mm-hmm. The scene when she's shooting those guys and the guy that had his neck hurt through ha- through the almost the entire movie who had that neck brace on, right. he shot in front of that that big piece of art. Right. Right where the face of the artwork is right. and the and blood, blood splatter just, just everything is thought about when when even stuff like even these scenes, well, probably that's probably <laughs> him being David Leitch, he's probably thinking about it even more during the fight scenes right. than than during the non-fight scenes. Exactly. Yeah, you know what's funny about that end scene is that my wife swears up and down that that was at the end of the credits when we saw it in the theater. Really? And I, I, like a like a Marvel end, end credit thing. Right. Which I totally, I, I don't completely remember, but I vaguely remember it being that way. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But in 2017, you can certainly see where that would have been useful. Right. Right. Because everybody does that now. Right. And the, the end with the cigarette smoke and everything, that was totally the end of the movie. Right. Roll credits, everything else. And exactly. then at the very end, Case you should have parrots three days later. Right. You stick around to the end to see that happen. So I, I don't know. I, I didn't do any looking on the old interwebs to find out if uh, that was the if case, but I probably it. should look to see if they change it for the uh, the DVD release or the TV release. Because I know like on, especially like on Fox, you know, they'll leave the end credit stuff on the Marvel movies. They yeah. just run the credits at like 10 miles an hour. So you can't read them. And right. then they'll pull that screen out and show what's happening on it. But I've also seen them take the ones that are in the middle and play them right at the beginning so that they can just crash through the credits and get to the end. Right. Um, so, I mean, you watched it on uh, on DVD or on mm-hmm. Blu-ray. So, obviously, it had the ending set up like it was where I watched it on Fox. But I, I could almost swear she's right that it was at the very end because I stayed at the end of the movies all the time. I've right. done that since Ferris Bueller. So, um, and it would have been a perfect yeah. post-credit like action sequence. Right, and it because it sets up any kind of sequel or anything from that point in time. Exactly. And that's usually what you use that for. And right. also so that people will stay and at least tacitly look at everybody who made your movie. <laughs> but were they were they that prevalent? In, yeah, I guess they were in 2017. Well, they've been doing Marvel movies since 2008, and they've all had and them at the all end had of that. Them. So, yeah. Maybe, maybe you're right. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to look and see. But, uh, yeah, because I, I, I'm like, I hate double-ending movies. <laughs> Just end the movie. Right. And show me something at the end that piques my interest for the next movie. It is a great ending, though. It's and it it does set up a, a sequel because then that's when you finally realize that she's wor- that she's CIA and you'd be like oh I can't wait to see the CIA version of Lorraine Broughton right in the sequel to Atomic Blonde right. Atomic you know, Blonde two more blonde electric bugaloo <laughs> Turbo and Ozone will re- reappear <laughs> will return <laughs> ouch <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh. That's pretty much the movie. She walks on the airplane and, and has some banter with has some, uh, has with some nice with, banter with John Goodman. With John Goodman and uh, apparently from where they were at, the flight timed Langley is eleven hours and forty two minutes. <laughs> Excellent network. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I thought it was a great movie. I think we've sort of said about as much as we can say. Absolutely, it's a, it's a spy movie that is somewhat trapped inside an action movie shell. Which, for the most part, I'm okay with. I don't know. 
I think it's a, a fight movie that's wrapped inside a spy movie shell. It's probably better. It's John Wick as a spy. Pretty much. And female. And really, really hot. In the 80s. <gasps> what if Charlize Theron is John Wick's mom? Dude. It could totally work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you had the theory, too. I don't think we ever... Did you talk about your, your theory? Maybe we did. We've been talking for a while. Your theory that... <laughs> Uh, Charlize Theron was emulating Kelly LeBrock. Oh, we did not, but I'm saying, watch, what is the one she's in with Steven Seagal when they were married? Um, oh God, I don't even remember all those. She's hard only, to kill or? I think it's hard to kill. But like I said, there were a couple of weird science moments with the accent that I just I think it's mainly the it's mainly the accent because the hair is much different. The hair is much different, but the clothing too. Well, the over the show, but Kelly LeBrock was big on the the big over the shoulder with the the one shoulder hanging out. Well, it was the eighties? I, I realize that, <laughs> but I'm saying um, she, there's a knit dress she's wearing that's white and black striped like a zebra that looked like something I saw Kelly LeBrock in once. I'm not saying necessarily that she was doing it on purpose, right? But there's this definite vibe, and I mean, if you think about it, in the eighties, Kelly LeBrock was kind of. The Shirley's Theron. She was a model. She was an actress. She was English, which obviously Shirley's Theron is not. But could you think, I mean, if you're looking to play somebody who's in the 80s, why wouldn't you try and emulate a popular 80s actress who might have been in that kind of a movie? Very true. Actually, now I'm thinking about Kelly LeBrock and kind of a tragic. Well, she married Steven Seagal. She married the wrong person. Anybody who marries Steven Seagal married the wrong person. (laughs) Um yeah it's just funny i think about there are certain celebrities who married the wrong people and it destroyed them as people yeah and i would say she would be on the short list of that Uh, agreed i mean she wasn't like going to be on some kind of meteoric rise to an oscar or anything no but she certainly could have extended her i mean even yeah i mean she was basically elizabeth hurley in the 80s and even elizabeth hurley had a better run she married Hugh Grant. Probably a better idea. Still not a great idea, but a better idea. It didn't really work out for her any more <laughs> than it did with Kelly LeBrock and, and Steven Seagal. But, you know. Yeah. Things. <laughs> things and um, stuff. And stuff. Anyway, I, I think we've said all we need to say about Atomic Blonde. <laughs> so, uh, I'm excited. We've got many more to come. Absolutely. Next up is Skyfall. Are you excited to talk Bond? And perhaps a bit of Batman. (laughs) I'm James Bond. (laughs) Exactly. So join us next time on CIC. I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And we will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.